cross and follow me. Now, Jesus is going to use that language here of you have to say no to your life and follow me. But I want you to hear the way he expresses what does it feel like to follow me? And specifically, what would it feel like to follow me into a place like that? Because in this text, I mean, here he is moving toward the cross. He calls us really into that pit. Why would he do that if he came to give us abundant life? John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now, this is going to speak about a feast, so that would be the, pass- the coming Passover feast. Lots of visitors, lots of outsiders converging on the city of Jerusalem. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Abba, Father, there's nothing like Your Word. But You know how we are made. You're intimately acquainted with all our ways. And You remember that we're dust. And You don't resent that we are weak. And so we come with um, heavy hearts or hurting bodies, or hurting emotions, or broken marriages, or struggles, or setbacks, or fear. And however we come, we we ask, Father, that you break through all that 
that we not pretend as if it's not there, but that you enable us to hear you and that we would be like sheep that are fed by your hand. We pray that even right now that you would make us lie down in green pastures, that you would lead us beside the waters of rest. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know a lot of you probably saw the movie The Matrix a while back, and I know that's not a new enough movie to be cool anymore, so okay, this is my old movie I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote. But uh, The Matrix, very fascinating, a lot of imagery, a lot of biblical names and terminology in The Matrix, if you've seen it. Uh, there's a main character named Trinity, the city where the, the real human beings are hiding out from the machines and all this artificial intelligence that's gone awry is the city of Zion. The ship that they travel around in is the Nebuchadnezzar. It's all biblical terms. There's, a, there's another biblical allusion. It's not a name, but one of the main characters is named Cypher. And he's really a Judas Iscariot sort of character. He, uh, he betrays all those who are dear to him. He sort of betrays the entire cause. He was right in the heart of it, and he goes behind their back and uh, makes an alignment with the forces of evil. So there's a scene in the first Matrix movie where Cypher, it's when you realize and, and the group realizes that he's a traitor. And so he's on a phone line. He's in the real world, and he's talking to his colleagues, his other team who've inserted themselves back into the matrix. They're talking. Cypher is talking to Trinity. It's a woman. Cypher says this. I'm tired, Trinity. I'm tired of this war. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of this ship being cold, eating the same goop every day. And he says, and I'm tired of Morpheus. So what you pick up on the fact that's the leader of that group, that, that he, he's not just tired of the life, he's tired of him and his authority. He says, he lied to us, Trinity. He tricked us. And Trinity says, that's not true, Cypher. He set us free. If you don't hear any other part, hear this. Cypher says, free? Now, if you haven't seen the movie, the people in the real world don't look like us. The people in the real world my understanding is that the movie makers made them look like people in the Holocaust. Shaved heads, kind of ragged sweaters, pale. So he's in the real world speaking to them in the Matrix. He says, free? You call this free? All I do is what he tells me to do. If I had to choose between that and the Matrix, I choose the Matrix. And honestly, I wonder, for a critical mass of people in this room right now, if, if you could, if you could know that it was safe to say it out loud, and there not be some penalty or some shaming, I wonder if you really spoke out of your heart of hearts, if some of us would say, that's what it's like for me right now, knowing God. And, and I have, I've heard this from my friends when I've talked to them about when God worked in their life. And brought them to himself. I've heard this from some of you when I've done membership interviews and you told me your story. But I've heard this theme over and over and over where somebody says some version. And I've, and I've said this back to you. Some version of I was kind of just tooling along and I was living my life and things were actually pretty good. And then God burst in. And he changed my heart. And I knew it was true. And he drew me to himself. But like then... 
the real suffering started. And so there's this great juxtaposition of my eyes were open to the truth. I came, I encountered great joy, but it's like the suffering didn't go down. The suffering spiked. And what I'm wanting us to think about this morning, this, and I hope this is true anytime, but I, I feel it more acutely this morning, is this passage calls us to really think about the nature of Christianity itself. And the word Christianity is not really in the Bible. It uses words like kingdom. Or, but Christianity is our term for following Jesus. And it's interesting, you know, because Christians, we're so, we're so awful at our own PR campaign. We are horrible at our PR campaign. Our PR, our PR campaign was supposed to be love. We've opted for other things. And it like blows up. So because of that, I think a lot of people who do believe in Jesus, we've kind of reached for other words besides Christian to describe ourselves because Christian now has so much negative baggage. And one thing I've heard more people, maybe in the last 10 years or so, the way they've identified themselves, if they believe in Jesus, they'll call themselves Christ followers or Jesus followers. Now, it's a little bit more clunky, but that actually works because Jesus says in more than one place in the Gospels, I'm not just calling you to like look at me as an exalted teacher and sort of buy into my, to my shtick, to concede to my points. I'm calling you to follow me. I'm going to lead, and I'm calling you to follow me. What does that look like? And, and I hope this morning that if, if, if because life is so hard, and I don't mind sometimes standing before you and saying very obvious 101 things. So let me say an obvious 101 things. Life is so hard. Life in a fallen world, as a fallen person, is hard. What does it look like to follow him? And I've got two points. And uh, you could remember these even if you don't take notes. Here, here's the two points. Following part one. Following part two. So take heart. Following part one, following part... What, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And listen, on both of these, I want to I, I ask two questions of, of both stages of following. Where is he leading? Okay, where's he going? And what does it look like to follow him? Where's he going? What does it look like to follow him? All right, following part one. Where is Jesus leading? Verses 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now that is a somewhat veiled but accurate reference to a Roman crucifixion. In a Roman crucifixion, the, uh, the criminal, the victim, would be spread out on the cross. You would be cruelly nailed to it, brutal. And then you would be lifted up from the ground and displayed before people. So he says, uh, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in other words, he's saying, I'm leading into something really horrible. And they've seen crucifixions. Something really horrible and cruel. But when I do that, I'm going to draw all people to myself. And keep in mind, we just saw a group of Gentiles. It doesn't say where they're from. 
but Greeks could cover almost anywhere. I mean, just most of the Gentile world, a huge part of the Gentile world was Greek speaking. Someone from somewhere else showed up for the Passover, knew about Jesus, came to the disciples, said, we want to meet him. The disciples come to Jesus with that request. All through the gospel of John, he's been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. When that request comes from those Greeks, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people, not just Jews. I'm going to draw all people to myself, which is pretty great. And he makes another great claim. Look in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And we say this a lot in here, but let me say it again. The way Jesus talks about the devil and angels is not mythic. They're not mythic. They're not fairies. They're not imaginative. It's not to make a point. It's not a personification of equality. Real beings that this malevolent intelligence that wars against God and his people, that he was always honest about. Jesus says, finally, I'm about to destroy his rule. I'm going to take him down. When I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself and I'm going to take him down, which is pretty great. So he's up emotionally, right? Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And I really want you to slow down and sit with that for a second and marinate in it. Nobody loved God more than Jesus. Nobody loved people more than Jesus. Nobody was wise and got it right and knew the right thing to do and knew the right way to process something and respond in real time. Nobody meditated on God's word, his father's word, day and night and bore fruit like Jesus. And this man says, I am moving towards something. And listen, he lived his life in the pit. Born poor, born into poverty, born into hardship, born into racism as a Jewish peasant in a Roman-dominated world. And on and on and on. Misunderstood by the Jews, misunderstood by the Romans, misunderstood by the Gentiles. He's lived his life in the pit, moved toward suffering, toward disease, toward death. But now I'm going to go into the pit of the pits. And as I'm moving toward that, I want to tell you, I'm nervous. I'm not walking confidently like a superhero. I am sad and shaken to move toward it. And what struck me looking at that passage is the word now. The juxtaposition of the word now. Now is the ruler of this world going to be defeated. Now my soul is troubled. Both and. So he says, all right, that's where I'm leading. Now, what would it look like for you as my followers to follow me toward that pit? And, uh, and he describes it, verse 25. And I really want to pay this verse some particular attention. Whoever loves his life loses it. Now, that phrase sounds like portions of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll find parallels to that. But this next phrase is unique to John. Let me start over. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what in the world does that mean? You know, like, I think even if you don't know much about the Bible, we can kind of intuit what he means by the first part. Whoever, let's read it again. Whoever loves his life loses it. Okay, so he seems to be saying, if I try to preserve, protect my little thing that I want for my life, if I try to have my mental picture and I'm going to achieve it, those people, that stuff, those vacations, that, my, th- that physical body, if I just fight, fight, fight for that, I'm going to end up actually losing my life. But then he says this other thing. It's the person who hates his life that'll keep it. What does that mean? To hate your life. Let's think again about the pit. And think about what is it like to not just live life where you know it's down there and occasionally you get close to it, occasionally even maybe have to go down into it a little bit. But what is it like to really go down in that pit and look around? Because one thing you're going to see for sure down there is death. And it's not going to be any respecter of persons. Any respecter of persons. It will come to those who are old. It'll come to those who are unborn. It'll come to babies and children and the middle-aged. Last weekend, I got to go back to my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi. I was doing some preaching there. And I uh, was looking forward to it. I got to take my oldest son, Henry, and it was the first time to really sort of show him my, my hometown and just have a little bit more time to say that's where I went to school and that's our old house and that's where I used to play. And I just, I'd been looking so forward to it. Uh, on, and we flew on a beautiful day. Two Fridays ago it was just beautiful. And our flight was carrying the remains of a fallen Marine. And as we're getting, you know, off our flight and walking into the little concourse through the little windows, you could see his widow receiving the body. This beautiful sky, excited about the weekend, death. And so what Henry and I were looking forward to is we were going to take a rental car from the airport to meet up with uh, my very close friend and his wife. And I really had wanted to see them because his wife's father had been ill and really deteriorating. So we were looking forward to going to this restaurant that I love. And, I, and, you know, like sometimes you wonder, like, is that place that I like and I want to go to, is it really as great as I remember? Is my mind playing tricks on me? Is it just nostalgia? Man, we went to this restaurant. I got redfish with soft shell crab and just annihilated it, just demolished it. So good, fun, saw people I knew. We're sitting there. We're just wrapping up dinner. Her phone rings. Her dad died. No respecter of timing. No respecter of persons. Death. Look around in the pit. What else will you see? Disease. The ravages of the fall on the human body. Several years ago, uh, in, a di- in our community group, we're in a, we, it's a different group that I'm presently in, but the, qu- the, the discussion question on the table was, what do you fear about the future? What are things in the future that, that make you afraid? And most everybody around the table were in their 30s or 40s, so we're speaking out of that, and, and a lot of us are kind of saying the same things. And then an older member of that community group said, Dementia. 
I'm watching what it's doing to my friends. And I wonder if I'm next. And by the way, moments like that are almost like single arguments for why we need different aged people in a community group. Because that, it, that was such a scent of real life. It's not that the other things weren't real, but we wouldn't have come up with that on our own, the younger ones. But you know, like dementia, Alzheimer's, for her was not this thing that's in institutions or in these nursing homes. It's my friends and it's radically altering the friend I had my whole life. Look around in the pit, divorce, marriage crisis, friends where I went to their wedding, I was, I was her bridesmaid, I was his groomsman, I toasted them at the rehearsal dinner and it was fun and we thought this one is a slam dunk. There's troubled marriages in this world but this one is a slam dunk and now they aren't married. And that affects their children. Or it hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. And that might be you. That this, that this marriage is so, there's so much hurt. And these hurts have such a long tail. Who, who can fix this? Is it fixable? And if it's not fixable, why are we continuing in this? Oh, that, that's all through the pit. The, the ravages of poverty. Global poverty. Local poverty. When I first moved here, you know, uh, 12 years ago, I was sort of doing anything I could to learn more about Greenville, just to, like, what, what is Greenville? What is my new home? And I remember more than once I took a tour that's offered by United Ministries. It's called the Poverty Tour. And it took me on streets that I just can almost guarantee you, if I had lived the rest of my life in Greenville, however long that's going to be, I wouldn't have gone down these streets. I just never would have found my way down these streets. And I saw neighborhoods, homes, situations that are just heartbreaking. And, and it, so I'm new in town, and as, as this guy is showing me around, I said, well, why doesn't someone do something? It's a stupid thing to say. Why, does, why doesn't somebody do something? And he looked at me and said, what? And I said, something. And he said, what? And I didn't know. What is the answer to pockets of poverty in Greenville? What, what, is, what is the answer to the part of a mill village where all the infrastructure is deteriorating and there's drug addiction, poverty, crime? What is, what is the answer? To tear it all down and gentrify it? Is that the answer? Confounding. Homelessness is in the pit. Addiction is in the pit. Oh, and by the way, the other thing that's in the pit is we're in the pit. That, you know, you, you press into your 20s, you press into your 30s, and no, this is not an exact science, I'm painting with a broad brush, but I think pretty much around your 40s, where you've pushed into building your career, working and doing grown-up stuff is not a shiny new thing anymore. And the difficulty of all this starts to press in on you. And especially for people who profess to be followers of Jesus, you look at yourself and you think, good grief, I thought I would be so much further along by now. I thought I wouldn't do such and such by now. I thought that I wouldn't hurt people like I do. And I'll tell you what else. I thought that I would really, really, really 
not just saying it, but deep down really, love Jesus more than I love blank, work, my phone, being liked, being pretty, but I don't. Now, when all that, when you go in the pit and really look around, there's, it seems like there's only two options. The first would be despair. And by the way, many writers and real intellectuals and artists are the people who've gone down into the pit and really looked around. And, and there's a disproportionate number of writers and deep thinkers and artists who have fallen into addiction or who have taken their lives because it's so painful. And the best definition I've ever heard of an artist, it's not original, someone said, the artist is the person who will not look away. And in a sense, Jesus is saying to all his people, be an artist. Follow me down into the pit and don't pretend, but look around and see what is there, even in yourself. So there's despair But what's the other one? Well, it seems like the other option is escape. It's funny. That's that's not just something that people who are not Christians do. Honestly, most all of us deep down are going, okay, I will concede the point that there is a pit. And I will concede that there's work to be done in the pit. But I think that I can vacation my way out. Or friend my way out. Or lake my way out. Or beach my way out. Or Instagram my way out. And we may smile at that. But you know what I think is some of the, the appeal of just looking and scrolling through the pictures. You know what some of the appeal is? You know what some of the dopamine hit is? Is that sometimes it looks like a world not fallen. And that, that stabs our heart, so we'll, we'll scroll. Uh, I will drink my way out. I will porn my way out. But I will dodge this bullet. And, and it's as if in this passage, Jesus is coming to us and saying, okay, and go where? So, so you'll go out of the pit and you'll go where? If you try to save your life, you will lose it. I'm going in, and make no mistake about it, my soul is troubled as I move toward the pit in the pit. Follow me. And what I want you to hear is like, is it, it's, on the one hand, it's daunting, but it's liberating to hear Jesus saying, don't pretend. Don't pretend that life is actually easy. Life is hard. But don't try to break out. And here's the thing. The gospel offers something that's not despair and it's not escape. It's the second following. Look at what... Let's ask the same two questions. All right, where's he leading? And what does following look like? Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this, to this hour. Now, 
I want you to catch what happens next in verse 28. Because there's only three times in the Gospels where God speaks audibly from heaven to Jesus. And the other Gospels record the other two. John is the only one who records this one in verse 28. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And that covers so much ground. But let, let, me, let me put it in theological terms. The humiliation of Jesus glorified the Father. And the exaltation of Jesus glorifies the Father. God the Father's Son becoming a man, becoming poor, becoming a baby, becoming a little Jewish kid, losing his earthly dad, being turned on by his own people, and being turned on by the Gentile world. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Finally undergoing torture and Roman crucifixion and falling under the wrath of his own father in that that he's doing for us. Let me live the life that you can't live so that you'll get credit for it. Let me die the the death that you deserve to die so that you won't have to die it. That you won't have to go through that death. In that the father is glorified. But what else glorifies the father is when after he goes down into the pit, what happens? He is raised. That he rises from the dead. And he ascends to the Father. And sits at the Father's right hand. Unlike the way he left. He left with no body. And he returns to heaven. God and man forever. Glorified at the right hand of the Father. Son, I have glorified it in your humiliation. And I will glorify my name in your exaltation. And Jesus says what? Follow me into the pit. But then what? Follow me into glory. And what a great way to describe it. Look at how he describes it in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That's what we've been talking about. But get this. Where I am... There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There's all these different ways that Jesus describes heaven. Feasts, wedding. But what does he say here? This is when the Father will honor you. If you follow me into that pit, Your righteousness is not what you do in the pit. If you look to me and follow me into that pit, and then follow me into glory, my Father will honor you. What, man, what would it look like for God to honor you? I was thinking about dogs. And with all all due respect to cat people, I want to meditate about dogs for just a moment. Dogs, the, the more I watch dogs, this becomes apparent to me. Dogs really are here for people. And they do stuff with other dogs. Like they hang out with dogs. They play with dogs. They get into trouble with other dogs. They bark at dogs. But it's when a dog, especially a pet dog, is with his or her master. And the master is giving this dog his or her attention and praising it. That, that, that's just when 
they just come alive like this is what it's all about. This is why I live for you. Think about about that and think about, you know, it would seem like the natural thing, the natural answer to the question, who are people for? It seems like the natural answer would be people are here for people, which is kind of true. And we work with people and we play with people and we're in families with people. We marry people. We bark at people, get into trouble with people. But what are we for? And and I'm going to go a little weird on you here. Because in in the New Testament, the Greek word for soul is a a feminine word. And, and, And writers from the past, when they would refer to the soul, sometimes they would say she, her. Male or female, that, that, that she is in there. She is most alive when she's looking at God and God looks at her and says, you did well. You did well. And Jesus, you know, Jesus deserved for the Father to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But because of what he's done for us and because he's made God our father and God can look at our frail works, no merit, but the works of his kids. Look at his children's works, even though they're flawed and tainted. At the end, God is going to look at some people in this room and say, you did well. This face that the angels can't look, look at. This face will look at, at her. Will look at us and say, you did very well. And listen, there is now no more death. There is no more divorce. There is no more addiction. There are no more physical ravages of the fall. There is no more depression. There is no more AIDS. There is no more imprisonment. In other words, this joy that is washing over you and making you glow like a light, the shoe is not going to drop. This is who you are. We are pilgrims. And I know that I'm about to kind of commit a heresy against hashtag, yeah, that Greenville. It's great to live in Greenville. It is truly great to live in Greenville. It's so great... It can cast a bad enchantment over you and get you to think that this is our home. We are pilgrims. And that's why Jesus has to say, look, while you've got the light, walk in the light. Do not live by appearances. Do not live by sight. If you're going to follow me into something that sad... And follow me to glory. You must live by faith. But you are pilgrims until you're home. Let me end with this. And, and uh, just briefly. This is one of those stories that I had heard before. And I wondered if it was like one of those preacher stories. That maybe a preacher made up at some point. Just to make a point, And then people just keep saying it like it's true. And it's not true. I, I, I dug around a little bit. I think that this is a true account. What I'm about to tell you. A man named Henry Morrison, early 1900s, missionary in Africa. He had served on the African continent for 40 years. 
and he was returning home by ship, a big ship. When they start getting uh, toward the New York Harbor, getting close to the dock where they're going to um, dock, there's a big, there's just a big crowd and fanfare. And this missionary said to his wife, "Somebody came here to, to meet us. Like after all those decades in Africa, I mean, think how long that would be. That'd be like if you started in the Carter administration before Ronald Reagan and you just got through." with very little fruit. And um, so they get to the dock, and it turns out that the then-president, Teddy Roosevelt, was on their ship, and they didn't know it. He had been big game hunting in Africa, and everyone was there to see him, the bands, the crowds, the reporters. So they welcome the president, who gets off first, and they all sort of head away, and so this husband and wife just come off the ship, and there's no one there to meet them. And so they go to a little one-room flat that had been rented for them in New York City by the, by the missions agency. And over the weeks, the wife could tell this was wearing on him. And so she finally said to him, have you really been honest with God about it? Have you talked to God about it? And Henry Morrison said, I, I don't think I have. She said, you need to say to him the things you're saying to me. So he went in his room and... Um, and he's praying these things. It's like we did all that work, God. And it just seemed like when we came home, someone would notice. And no one noticed. And he prayed. And he comes out of his room and his wife saw him. And, and it's like his face had changed. It's like his countenance had changed. And she said, well, what happened? And the way he told the story is, I was praying. And I was saying those things that I said to you. And it was like God put his hand on my shoulder and said, I know that it hurt you because you thought somebody would be there when you came home. But you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Man, that's hard to remember. Walk by faith. Walk as children of light. Walk in the light so that you may become sons of light. I wouldn't say it if Jesus hadn't said it, but hate, rightly hate, this life that you might love your life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, it doesn't come naturally to us to even know how to do this. We want to embrace what is good. We want to love what is right and good. We want to be grateful for the good gifts you give us in our family, our city, our work, our world. Lord, we pray that it would be like a hate as we see our own fallenness, as we see the fallenness of the world, as we see what it's doing to people around us in our world, that it would be like a hate in comparison to loving you and anticipating your return. Lord Jesus, we would be so bold as to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.